Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive Theology Podcast. Today, we are starting a brief series on the sacraments in Christendom. Um, In both the Roman Catholic and Protestant denominations, there are sacraments, but they approach them very differently. So we're going to be going through the different sacraments and how both denominations approach these. Before we get started, we just want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And if you'd like more information, you can head to our website, thrivetheology.com. Also, just want to make a quick note, we have some new podcast art officially, so that's exciting. We're enjoying it. A lot of you voted on Instagram for what you liked best, so thank you for that. It was fun to kind of see all of your responses on our different designs, and we've also given our website a bit of a facelift as well, just kind of in keeping with the new design. So you can check that out if you haven't already, and uh, we'll get started. So first of all, what is a sacrament? If you aren't in the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox traditions, you might not have heard this word sacrament very often. Indeed, in the like mainstream Protestant, like evangelical type circles, we don't really tend to use the word very often. Um, So this is going to be a bit new, but you're probably familiar with some of them already. So first of all, sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which means an oath or a solemn vow. In, in Christendom, which, you know, which means all the different forms of Christianity, the number, type, and the way of, of observing the sacraments, it differs greatly between traditions and denominations. You can check out our series on denominations from episode 32, 33, 34, and 35, and especially number 33, because that's where we dug deep into Catholicism. There's going to be a bit more explanation of their general practices and differences and beliefs. So first, we're going to do a brief overview of the Roman Catholic perspective of sacraments. So the Roman Catholic Church defines sacrament as a Christian rite, such as baptism or the Eucharist, which is communion in the Catholic Church, that is believed to have been ordained by Christ and that is held to be as a means of divine grace or to be a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. The Council of Trent, which was a council of the Roman Catholic Church that happened in 1545, defined sacrament as, quote, a visible sign of an invisible grace. Matthew Leonard from St. Paul Center to Biblical Theology says this, the ordinary means that Christ uses to extend salvation to the whole world. The sacrament or sign is not only a symbol of the reality, but also helps to bring about the very reality it symbolizes. An example of this is when a baby is baptized. The baptism not only symbolizes their soul being cleansed from original sin, but it actually restores grace. It does what it symbolizes. So we call this affectatious signs. So this means a sign that is a sign, but it also does the thing that it signifies. So in the Catholic tradition, sacraments sanctify us and get us, they help get us to heaven. Through the sacraments, we become children of God, uh, according to Catholic doctrine. And the Catholic Church recognizes seven sacraments. They are baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, confession or penance or reconciliation, um, anointing of the sick, marriage, and holy orders. The Protestant perspective is a little bit different. It defines a sacrament as a sign or a seal of grace that has already been received. Um, It is an outward expression of what has already occurred spiritually. 
Reformers led by Martin Luther argued that baptism and communion were the only sacraments that should be recognized as such, because those were the two that Christ clearly commanded the church to do. Um, Now, the Protestant church completely rejects the idea that any sacrament can provide any salvation or help us get to heaven in any way. So just to clarify here, um, the Protestants would say that baptism and communion are the two ordinances, which are commands of Jesus of something that we're to do, we are to do, but it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with salvation or saving grace or anything like that. So again, Catholics would say sacrament or Orthodox Christians would say sacrament, more Protestant denominations would say ordinance. And then the Eastern Orthodox Church tends to call sacraments the mysteries of the church. And if you'll recall from hearing our episodes back on denominations, they um, are a lot more mystical in nature in their worship. So we're going to take a look at the first sacrament, which is baptism. So the Roman Catholic perspective of baptism is that of paedo-baptism or infant baptism. Um, And they practice this as much as possible. Um, The only exception being in the case of an adult coming to faith later on in life, they would be baptized as well just by sprinkling. With infants, baptism cleanses them of original sin, not just actual sin, because they are not yet capable of committing actual sin. Actual sin meaning a sin that you willfully made consciously. For adults, baptism cleanses them of both original and actual sin in the Catholic Church. Acts chapter 22, verse 16 is one of the verses that is used to support this. It says, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. John chapter 3, verse 5 is also used to support this, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the Catholics use these two verses to just say, Obviously, baptism is necessary for salvation. Roman Catholics also pair these two passages with other passages of scripture where people are bringing children to Jesus, and he says, do not suffer the children, come unto me. And they use this to support infant baptism. So they kind of say, okay, look, baptism is necessary for salvation, and also Jesus likes children, so therefore infants need to be baptized. They kind of bring those two passages together. The Protestant perspective on baptism is that they view it as an ordinance, meaning it's a command of Jesus that we're supposed to do as um, an outward sign of an already spiritual or inward change that's happened. It represents grace that's already been given and received, meaning salvation, and it does not impart that grace or act as a conduit for receiving it. Now, in Protestant circles, your stance on infant versus adult baptism really depends on your theology. There are two main camps. The first is dispensationalism, which is a long word, um, and the other one is covenant or replacement theology. Dispensationalism views um, says that the Bible is viewed in seven dispensations or ages, and these are innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, and the millennial kingdom. Now, if this is confusing, that's okay. But they be- basically, they believe that Israel is not replaced by the church and believers are baptized upon confession of the faith at an appropriate age of accountability. So this would be believers or adult baptism. The other main camp is covenant or replacement theology. This is the biblical view that the Bible is comprised of three covenants, which are the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. So in this theology view... 
the church is viewed as the new Israel and therefore infant baptism is kind of like the new circumcision. So it represents the child belonging to the new covenant in Christ, just like circumcision represented the Israelite children being part of the old covenant. Now, if you have questions about this or want to find out more, we're not going to go any more in depth than this because we are just trying to do an overview of baptism, but we did two in-depth episodes on these topics. Episode 50 was all about infant versus adult baptism, support and weaknesses of both of those. And then episode 52 was a deep dive into the differences between dispensational and covenant theology. So you can check out those two episodes if you want to learn more. The next sacrament we're going to talk about is confirmation, which is also known as chrismation. Churches that practice infant baptism will usually have a form of confirmation around age 13 when the young person confirms their baptismal promises on their own two feet. Now, remember, at the baptism of an infant, the parents make the promises for their child, like in place of or in proxy of their child. Because, of course, the baby can't do that because the baby cannot speak. Confirmation usually occurs after the person has completed their catechism class, which is like a Christianity basics. This is what we believe. They teach you to understand it, know how to explain it, know how to defend the faith. Um, Basically, so you understand what you believe. Usually at this ceremony of confirmation, a sponsor can stand beside the person for support, although they are not answering the questions for them. Usually this is a godparent, a parent, a youth leader, someone who's important to them in the faith, etc. The biblical basis that Catholics use for confirmation um, is in two places. We have Acts chapter 8, which is where the apostles in Jerusalem hear that the Samaritans have received the word of God, so they send Peter and John. And then Peter and John um, lay their hands on them. And the confirmation occurs when the apostles lay hands on the new believers after baptism and they receive the Holy Spirit and they're empowered and equipped to preach the good news. The other text they use is in Acts chapter 19, as I said, and that is where Paul finds the Ephesians have only had the baptism of John. They've only been baptized into the name of John. They haven't heard about Jesus Christ. They only heard um, John as the prophet of Jesus Christ. So then he baptizes them into Christ and lays hands on them, which is when they receive the Holy Spirit. So essentially the Catholics look at these two passages and say, okay, the Holy Spirit thing, laying hands, them receiving the Holy Spirit. Protestants would say that they're being baptized into the Holy Spirit. Catholics would say they're being confirmed. Now, um, I took an Acts class when I was in university, and it was really interesting to hear the way that these passages are explained, because at this point in the church, it's mostly been Jewish believers who, or Jewish people who have come to believe in Jesus. And so they can, they're connected with the apostles, they're connected with the church, they can see what's going on in their lives, um, and they can see that these people, when they believe, they receive the Holy Spirit and they are baptized. It's a, it's a very short thing. Um, but the believers in Samaria, they are not Jewish. In fact, typically Jewish people don't associate with Samaritans. They're half-breeds. They're half-breeds, right? That would be the term. 
as derogatory as it is. And so you've got Jewish leaders in this new Christian church that are hearing about these Samaritans that have received the word of God and believe, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. And so the idea is that God holds off on sending the Holy Spirit until Peter and John come. They lay hands on these people. They receive the Holy Spirit. And that was so that the leaders of the, of the church could see that no, Samaritans are accepted just like you are. They're just as part of the church as you are. And so this happens a couple different times where the leaders of the church see personally how God is accepting people that are outside of the Jewish faith into the church and into salvation by receiving the Holy Spirit. There are other times where people believe receive receive the Holy Spirit and then are baptized. The order is not always the same. And so the um, the place that these verse these passages have in salvation history is the point where God is making it clear to the leaders of the church, which is mostly Jewish, that everybody is accepted. Everybody is able to come to Jesus, that you don't have to be um, Jewish. You don't have to convert to Judaism because these people didn't convert to Judaism before the Holy Spirit came or before they received the word. They were just received. And that was necessary for then when the church left Jerusalem because of various things, including persecution, that they had the confidence that they could go preach the gospel to other people. They didn't have to change anything about them to become more Jewish. They knew that God would accept them because they had seen this played out or these, these church leaders, Peter and John, disciples of Jesus had seen this played out. So that's what maybe the non-confirmation or non-Catholic view would be on these verses rather than instituting this whole thing where Jesus says that you have to have hands on laid, hands laid on you with apostolic succession in order to receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a closer look at the Roman Catholic perspective of confirmation. CatholicChurch.org says, quote, confirmation is the sacrament that makes us more perfect Christians at witnesses of Christ by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The person is confirmed and accepted as a complete member of the church at confirmation, and they receive the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, Catholics believe, during this ceremony. The common liturgy for confirmation um, involves two questions and the answer. So the first question is, do you renounce the lies of Satan and all his empty promises? And the appropriate answer is yes. <laughs> and the second is that you need to repeat a statement that begins with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And that's just like a statement of faith and what you believe. So if you are an adult and want to join the Catholic Church, you will be baptized as an adult, which is not immersion. Um, and then immediately you're going to be confirmed. And then immediately after that, receive your first communion. If you're a child born into the Catholic Church, you're going to be baptized as an infant. Uh, you're going to do your first communion and confirmation as like pre-adolescent. So that'll happen like maybe grade six, grade seven, somewhere in there. Yeah. And there's a whole catechism class for this. I was looking up questions for confirmation because I wanted to see what this list was. And up came all of these quizlets of here are the answers to the questions you're going to have in your confirmation class. Like here's what the priest might ask you, hmm. which was just so foreign to me, but so interesting that that's what came up when I Googled it. Yeah. It's also worth noting that in the Catholic Church, you cannot participate in taking communion until as a child you've been confirmed and you've gone through the first communion ceremony. 
as a teenager, I went to a Catholic high school because I had not been baptized in the Catholic church, been confirmed and had my first communion. I could not partake of the Eucharist. So instead I would go up to the front with everyone else and I would just like cross my arms over my chest. And then that would be a signal to the priest. Okay. This woman is a heathen. Well, not heathen, (laughs) but (laughs) I wasn't Catholic, right? Like I wasn't Catholic, so I couldn't participate. And then he would just, he just like blessed me instead kind of thing. And then I went back to my seat. So another element of confirmation is that you are anointed with the sign of the cross in oil on your forehead. And usually uh, communion follows the confirmation service. And of course, if you're being confirmed, it's probably your first communion. And then after that, you can partake in the Eucharist as a full-fledged member of the Catholic church. But this really does depend sometimes on individual church practices. And also just a quick note on the Anglican church, which is in many ways, very similar to the Catholic church. In the Anglican denomination, confirmation can only be conducted by a bishop due to apostolic succession. So it can't just be a priest. It has to be a bishop who's like a a level or two higher than than a priest. Just for clarification, apostolic succession is the belief that the original 12 apostles passed on their authority to be apostles and the authority that Jesus had given them by laying on of hands. And this... Um, This is an unbroken line from 2,000 years ago from the apostles laid hands on this person who laid hands on this person who laid hands on this person. So every single bishop, priest, or whatever who has had these laying on of hands goes all the way back to Jesus is the belief of apostolic succession. Protestant perspective on confirmation is pretty different from the Roman Catholic one. So confirmation is really only present in churches that practice infant baptism. Reformed churches, for example, practice profession of faith, which is when a teenager, usually between the ages of 14 and 18, or an adult who comes to faith later in life, will stand before the church and they will profess their complete trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is somewhat paired with baptism. It's kind of like baptism is step one and this is step two because baptism in this tradition represents a child being part of the new covenant, just like we were talking about a few moments ago. And then profession of faith is their public declaration of following Christ for the rest of their life as an adult. In churches that practice adult baptism, this profession of faith is usually part of the baptism and is often a testimony. So it's a time for the person being baptized to share some of their faith journey, how Jesus has brought them that brought them to this point, and to publicly defer, declare their faith. Usually, the baptism candidate is asked a few questions, such as, "Are you here of your own free will? Do you repent of your sins and confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior?" Is it your desire to be baptized today, etc.? The candidate is then baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now this um, baptizing in the name of the Trinity, there's this triune baptism. This is recognized by multiple denominations. Say, oh yes, I'm like if you're going to an Anglican church, um, but you're, you weren't baptized in the Anglican church. If your baptism was in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then it like quote unquote counts with them. You're allowed to take communion. Um, they consider you to be like a baptized Christian, etc. Now you may be wondering what happens if you change denominations. 
that do baptism differently? Well, there is a double dunking. It's the idea where you've been um, baptized as a baby and then you decide to get baptized as an adult. And this would happen when a person was baptized as a baby, like the sprinkling baptism, um, and their parents are the ones that did their promises for them on their behalf. And they grow up and they say, you know what? That wasn't me. That was my parents saying that for me. I want to get baptized of my own volition and give the promises myself. And so they'll count that, the second one, as an adult. They'll count that baptism as their own. In the Reformed Church, you don't have communion until after your profession of faith um, or baptism as an adult. We are going to leave it at that for this first episode in our sacraments series. Um, as we finish up here, as always, we're going to give you some recommended resources. We are actually going to re- recommend two of our own episodes. Episode 50 talks about infant versus adult baptism. That's going to go into a lot more detail. And I, we found it really interesting to study and record the first time. And this is a really great time to bring it up. The second episode is 52. That's where we talk about dispensational versus covenant theology. And that's going to be pretty key when you're talking about what baptism means as an adult versus what baptism baptism means as an infant and why those things are um, important to different denominations. One article that we found really helpful is from gotquestions.org, which is one of our regularly consulted websites whenever we're researching. It's called, What is the Difference Between Ordinances and Sacraments? Of course, you'll remember a sacrament is a means of grace instituted by Jesus um, that's from the Catholic Church, and then an ordinance is just a command of Jesus that's a symbol of an already happened um, giving of grace or an already happened change. And then lastly, um, this one was one of my favorites. It's from catholicchurch.org. It's a list of study questions for Catholic confirmation. I found it really interesting because it was very short, concise answers to very simple questions. It helped me to kind of get the gist of things without having to read too much information, um, kind of like one sentence replies. And I found it just super interesting as a non-Catholic who does not have a lot of personal experiences with Catholicism at all. So those are our recommended resources. We've got four for you this week. We hope you enjoyed listening to us. We certainly enjoyed doing the research and we are looking forward to talking to you next week about the next couple sacraments. Until then, um, enjoy our website, thrivetheology.com. As Emily said, it's been revamped. And as she did all of the design work, I am super appreciative and in awe of her skills. Definitely go check them out. Um, If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that on our website, like I just said, or you can check us out on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We always love hearing from you and interacting with our listeners. We'll talk to you next week.